The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. When people come to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just such a terrible person and I've become addicted to this thing. It's like we, we have to separate the morality from the functionality. Again, I'm not saying that all behavior should be acceptable. I am saying if you're going to change it, first we have to take the morality off of it, get curious as to the functionality of it. And then once we've identified the specific function, then we can problem solve. Hey, everybody. It's Friday. And all week I've been talking with Britt Frank therapist and professor who's written a book called The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. So how's it been going? Even if you've listened to all this week's episodes, which are still there in the podcast feed if you want to go back and check them out, and even if you've read Britt's book, I'm betting there are places where you're still stuck, places in your life where you're having trouble making the forward progress you'd like to. Maybe you have a serious addiction to a substance or a behavior. In that case, you're probably going to need help from others to get unstuck. Maybe you're just struggling with procrastination or inconsistency or lack of motivation. Whatever the issue, the thing you need to know about that seemingly dysfunctional behavior, it actually has a function. Here's Britt to explain. All behavior is functional. Now, again, as a former addict and someone who suffered from clinical depression, OCD, borderline personality disorder, eating disorders, and very dangerous behavioral addictions, I understand that the pain and the devastation of addiction is real. But all behavior is functional, or it wouldn't be there. And failure to name the function of a behavior renders us completely inert. And what happens is a lot of us try to attack our habits and compulsions from the standpoint of just behavior modification. I'm just gonna get to the gym. I'm gonna get to the gym tomorrow. And tomorrow's the day I'm gonna turn off my screen an hour before bed. And tomorrow is the day I'm gonna get out my to-do list. But failure to identify the function of a behavior makes it next to impossible to change the behavior. And New Year's resolutions are a wonderful example of this. Every year on January 1st, we all resolve to do the things differently. But what we don't do is resolve to understand what happened last year. What was the function of that addiction? Addiction is largely, again, a suboptimal way to self-protect. If I am addicted to a substance or a behavior or a person or a way of thinking, being, or doing, then I don't have to deal with whatever is waiting for me on the other side of that. The idea that we need to grieve our losses, that we need to name the things that we're most afraid of, that we need to integrate the parts of ourselves that we don't like, all as antecedents to change, is a really hard sell. But I can tell you as a professional and as a human, it takes way more work to avoid the work than to do the work. In this case, maybe we could talk through a few specific examples and how knowing this might be helpful. So we could start with something big like compulsive or problematic drinking behavior. What might be the function of that? And how Mm -hmm. would knowing that function make it easier to be less self-destructive? So why would somebody find over-drinking functional? 
well, maybe they go home to a really difficult marriage and they're raising mm. children and having a really hard time with it and they have no friends or social supports. And every day they go into work where they're overworked and underappreciated and underpaid and constantly in competition. And that person has no skills, tools, resources, or ability to accurately name what they're feeling, let alone give themselves permission to go get some support for it. Wow, you came up with all those ideas really fast. <laughs> you, you must have encountered some people like this. Just a few, you know. And again, this goes back to I have never seen someone whose symptoms did not make sense in context. Some people will say, well, isn't addiction genetic? You know, it's not always functional. It's like genetics may predispose you to something, but yes. you do not become addicted without some sort of functionality behind it. And again, mm -hmm. that could be image preservation. It could be unhappiness. It could be just not feeling comfortable living in a human body. If you're not taught, hey, here's what anxiety does. Here's what a depressed nervous system does. And this is what you're going to feel on any given day being a human in a very difficult world. Then you're going to be highly incented to numb it out with people, places, or chemicals. And so, again, when people come to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just such a terrible person and I've become addicted to this thing. It's like we, we have to separate the morality from the functionality. Again, I'm not right. saying that all behavior should be acceptable. I am saying if you're going to change it, first we have to take the morality off of it, get curious as to the functionality of it. And then once we've identified the specific function, then we can problem solve. So the goal then would be once you can identify if the function of drinking in this case is trying to escape the marriage or, or trying to avoid making positive changes in the relationship, if you can sort of bring that to the surface, then at least you have the opportunity to find another, perhaps more functional mechanism for addressing that problem than exactly. just getting wasted every night. It, which is why I don't think behavior modification is sufficient. You could go to AA and find a way to not drink, but I think it's also fairly obvious that there are plenty of people who don't use substances who are miserable and who act right. in miserable ways to themselves and to other people. If we want to not just do well, but also be well while doing well, it's not enough just to have abstinence. We want to have an understanding of ourselves so we can meet the needs in a healthy way and in a sustainable way. And I was thinking about some of these habits like biting one's nails or some little obsessive habits, which I, th I think are probably self-soothing in some way. They are mm -hmm. some way of managing stress. And maybe there's a way that you can kind of notice that you are experiencing stress. And that's a signal to yourself. Like that very behavior is a good piece of feedback that, oh, I'm, I seem to be a little anxious about something, a little stressed about something. Maybe instead of just picking my nails, I should go deal with whatever is stressing me out. Which is totally fair. And I have certain lingering OCD things that I uh -huh. do. Could I stop? Probably. Could I spend my time and my energy and my money going to exposure therapy and learning <laughs> why I shouldn't count this thing or crack my nails or whatever? Like you said, I use that as feedback right. that I'm perhaps getting into a stress level that I need to pay more attention to. But right. I don't think every single thing that ails us needs to be fixed or cured or even understood. Sometimes it just needs to be accepted and sometimes it needs to be accommodated. 
I try not to crack my nails and, you know, my knuckles around my husband because it drives him <laughs> bananas. So I go to another room if I'm feeling the need to just crack my neck and my knees and my fingers and my wrists and my toes. Right. <laughs> but we don't need to solve every single thing. Sometimes right. it's enough just to go, okay, that's a sign that there's probably some other things I need to be doing. But I'm not going to invest time and resources in stopping something that's not actually causing me overt harm. Life's too short and there's too much to do. That sounds very reasonable. And maybe crack, <laughs> maybe cracking your knuckles is a nice little shadow snack for yourself. Like, I'm just going to go that. crack the heck out of these knuckles right now. <laughs> just going to yes. give myself a full-on knuckle-cracking session. That's happening right after this call. It's interesting, you know, that we can talk about in the same conversation chronic alcoholism and knuckle-cracking. And maybe this is controversial because obviously there's a lot of literature around addiction as a disease. And obviously some behaviors have more severe life consequences than others. But it seems that you're interested in finding the common threads between the more clinically severe behaviors and the more everyday ones. And by illuminating those common threads, you think that that you can help both the addict and the everyday procrastinator. Is that right? Well, I am the addict and the everyday procrastinator. <laughs> okay. It doesn't really matter. We know that any addiction, regardless of its origin, is going to be exacerbated if their brain does not feel safe. You know, we all have a nervous system. And so a nervous system that feels safe or safer is going to exhibit far less symptomology than a nervous system that is feeling completely overwhelmed and out of whack all the time. So wherever you fall on the mental health spectrum or on the addiction spectrum or whatever, the issue of brain safety versus a brain perceiving danger is the same dilemma that we all face to a degree. And I'm very invested in helping people understand, know your brain is not attacking you, Know your symptoms are not a sign of your brokenness. They're indicator lights that are a cue that something needs attention. And then it makes it a little bit less scary. You know, our pain is our pain. There's nothing that's going to solve the problem of emotional pain and loss and grief. But we can certainly make the symptoms less shameful and less scary by understanding the mechanisms that contribute to our symptoms, whatever severity they may be. Well, Britt, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed hearing your ideas. And thank you again for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for the week. Now, here's your homework. Go find a copy of The Science of Stuck at your favorite bookstore and download our free Next Big Idea app to keep Britt's insights fresh in your mind. Inside the app, you can try out our video and audio courses on topics like relationships, time management, decision-making, and other useful life skills. None of us can do this alone, people. We've also got a newsletter you can join through the link in the episode notes, which will turn your email inbox into a source of surprising wisdom. I'm Michael Kovnat, your host, writer, and producer. Kayla Bissinger and Rufus Griscom are executive producers. Sound design this week was by Emily Rostick. The Next Big Idea Daily is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. See you next week. <laughs>